Good evening. You may not have been here this morning, or it could have been that uh, you haven't had the chance to see that for some reason, but I, I wanted to say that I believe that this morning's sermon was one of the finest, not only on that subject, but uh, the finest sermons that I've ever heard. Uh, it was an incredible, unique take on a subject that I believe is correctly assessed this morning is usually addressed from two extremes, but we are indebted to Hiram for the great way in which he really exposed some truths that we needed. Uh, we were very blessed as a result of that, and we're grateful. When we think about the task that we have of trying to use our influence in our lives to reach others, there are a variety of ways that God has placed before us to do that. And God wants us to use the wisdom that it takes for us to do that in the right way. There was a man by the name of Frank Buck who was officially known as an animal collector, a collector of animals. And he started a zoo in Gainesville, Texas in 1930 as a result of the wild and exotic animals that he was getting from Brazil and Singapore and Indonesia and Africa and the rest of the world. By the end of the 1920s, he was known as the leading collector of exotic animals in the world. He even, along with that, though, had a nickname that made him unique. His name was Bring Them Back Alive. That was his nickname. He wrote a book by that title. He had a radio show with that title. Even a Hollywood documentary that had that Frank Bring Them Back Alive buck name attached to it. And he said, anybody can gun them down. But who would dare to bring back a lion or a rhino alive? When you think about the task that God has given to us, isn't it interesting that we could have a Wild West mentality that says, we're going to bring them in, dead or alive. And we have interactions with folks, I don't know how it's going to go, but I'm going to do whatever it takes, perhaps even to win an argument. But of course we understand that that's not the way the Lord has it laid out for us to do. We understand that God would love to have every soul to come back to Him spiritually alive. God, our Savior, would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. Or put another way, the Lord does not want any to perish, but He would love for all to come to repentance. And to prove that, our Lord sent Jesus to be a substitute sacrifice for us and then He called for His people to take that message to the world to share with them the good news that one has died in their place. And when we begin to examine the early church, we will find that they were full of courage and conviction and they were willing to do whatever it took to get the message out. When you begin to study about the early church, what things are said of them are things like that they were filled with boldness, Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. That they went everywhere preaching the word, even as they were scattered, Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. At the end of the Bible, John says that the saints did not love their lives even to the death, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. And we begin to see, though, even this courage, this conviction that drove people to speak about Jesus wherever they went, that the New Testament shows us that there's more than one approach that may be available to us. In the text that was just read to us so well just a moment ago, we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2, Peter speaking to the wives and saying to them that if they have that non-Christian husband, that even if they are not convinced by the word, they may without a word be won by the conduct of the wives as they observe your holy and respectful behavior. 
Peter is laying out for a woman in this situation the most intimate mission field that there could be. And he is saying to her that she has the opportunity, not necessarily by the words that come out of her mouth, but by the godly and righteous behavior of her life, to win a husband who cannot be won through a Bible study, who cannot be won by a sermon, who cannot be won by a Bible class perhaps in that moment. And this reflects something that Jesus led out for his disciples at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. You remember in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, you're the salt of the earth. And if the salt has lost its flavor, how will it be made salty again? It is therefore good for nothing but to be thrown out and to be cast under the foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither does anyone take a lamp and place it under a basket, but places it on a lampstand that it may give light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And therefore glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know, our Lord wanted us to be impressed with the fact that folks would see the light of the world, not just through our words, but as importantly through our works. And the Apostle Paul, it's interesting that he would emphasize this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he says, Though I am free from all, yet I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jew I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jew. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though being not under the law myself, that I might win those that are under the law. And to those without law, I became as without law, though being not without law to God, but being under the law to Christ, that I might win those that are without the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I became all things to all men, that I might through all means save some. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 22, Here you have the Apostle Paul indicating to us that there is an opportunity for us, as he did, to win the people around us. Now I want to point out to you that that word win that's used in 1 Peter chapter 3, that she may win her husband without a word, is the same word that's used by the Apostle Paul. Peter uses it once in 1 Peter 3. Paul uses it five times out of the 17 times that it's used in the New Testament, and it means to gain by intense effort and through investment, and it means for a loss to not be caused to happen. Peter is saying the same thing Paul is saying. And in our text, the Apostle Paul is not so focused on what he said as much as what he did. And when we leave here tonight and we go out into the world for the next six days before it's the Lord's Day again, we'll come and we'll rally together on Wednesday. But all in between that, we find ourselves out in a world that is not just listening to what we're saying, but more importantly, they're watching what we do. And we can be so powerfully influential, winning folks without a word. If we can remember some of the things that the Apostle Paul would highlight for us in these few verses. I want to take just a few moments for us to look through 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and the lesson will be yours. I want us to see what we can do in winning without a word through our influence. How do you win without the word? The first thing that you've got to do to win without a word is to be humble. When we approach the Apostle Paul in this text, we remember the background to the epistle. They were filled with problems, and among the early problems that the Apostle Paul addresses, and he addresses it throughout the book, is the problem of pride. There's an arrogance. 
There's a pride in people. There's a pride in what we do. A pride in knowledge that puffed up. In fact, in this letter, the Apostle Paul addresses arrogance six times. And he says it's dangerous when you have this pride. In fact, if you'll walk through the epistle, you'll find him demonstrating that that pride could keep people from obeying the gospel. And it could be that which stood in the way of somebody who already obeyed the gospel from growing and maturing in Christ. And when we look at pride, we're not surprised at this because pride can be so destructive in so many different ways. Proverbs 16 and verse 18. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16, we see that pride is something that God hates. When we think about pride, it is so dangerous because it's so common, a tendency that we can have to be wrapped up in ourselves and to not be looking at others. I read about a... A little house, a 46 square foot house that a Polish uh, architect by the name of Jacob Sesny built. And he built this little house in an alleyway between two buildings, 46 square feet. I, I know there's such thing as a tiny house, but that's a tiny, tiny house. And in that house, he had a kitchen. And that kitchen had a refrigerator that could only house two cans of soda. They had a bathroom. And it was built such with that uh, dimension that the shower hovered almost immediately over the toilet. There were no windows in that house, one bedroom, and you had to access it up through a ladder. And it was five feet at its widest, three feet at its narrowest. I believe that was probably more a publicity stunt than it was a real estate investment. But there is actually an Israeli writer that lives in that house. It's the carrot house, probably the size of a carrot, K-E-R-E-T. But you think about how restrictive it's got to be to live in something that's really, you're wearing your house. It's so small. The Apostle Paul understood that life was bigger than himself. It was bigger than that confined space of self-centeredness. He had the vision of Christ, and by seeing with the vision of Christ, he could see everything that Christ could see, and as the result of that, what you will notice him saying is, though I am free from all. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is going to walk through a series of things that he had the right to do. He had the ability, he had the freedom from God to do those things, but because of desiring the salvation of others, he didn't do them. The Apostle Paul says, though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. Paul, rather, is reflecting the attitude that Jesus had with his disciples as he walked the earth. He says that greatness comes through servitude. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 through 28, and Jesus says the greatest example that I could give you this, that even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul is emphasizing how effective that we can be when we get ourselves out of the way. You know, it's a tendency that we can have in the culture as it is right now through social media or in real life for us to get out there and say, look at who I am. We pay attention to ourselves. We want everybody to see that life revolves around us. But when we get out of the way, think about how powerfully Christ can use one who is decreasing and allowing Christ to increase. To allow ourselves to hide behind the cross so that people can see that. See, when we do that, we can influence people even though they don't know that they're being influenced. 
I know we have some folks here who have been through the Dale Carnegie courses. I have not. But it was Carnegie that said that the sound of a person's name is to that person the sweetest and the most important sound in any language. And that is a biblical concept. The Apostle Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, Let nothing be done through empty conceit and vanity, but in humility of mind. Let each esteem others as better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the interests of others. In 1 Peter chapter 3, with regard to the Christian woman with the non-Christian husband, the Apostle Peter is saying you can be powerfully attractive through a meek and gentle spirit. And then he follows that up in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, and he says, finally, by way of summary, I want all of you to be humble in spirit. Sometimes we are not going to get a word. And we live in a world with so much noise. But what we can do to powerfully and effectively win another soul without a word is to simply practice Christ-like humility. That's how we can win without a word. And that's the Apostle Paul's strategy. But then second, if we are going to win others without a word, we need to be discerning. We've got to be able to use some sound judgment The Apostle Paul is indicating to us that there are some things that he could have done. As he looked at his life, he knew that there were some truths that had to be stood up for. He could not equivocate with regard to those. He was going to be very careful to watch his example and his influence. Now, with regard to that, he knew that that meant that he was going to have to reflect the right kind of character. It's a lot like what happens in 1 Peter When Peter is talking to the Christian wife there, there's an emphasis in that epistle where they were suffering for their faith that they needed to be holy. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, Peter begins with a series of imperatives in which he says, I want you to be holy even as the Lord God is holy. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 9, he says, I want you to realize that you're a holy nation, you're a holy priesthood. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5, I want you to be like the holy women of old. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, he says, I want you to set apart Christ as holy in your hearts. I want you to focus very carefully on yourself, be discerning about yourself. And in that, he's not saying that we're supposed to be so politically correct that we never offend anybody by standing up for what's right. But what he is saying is that we need to be very careful to look into the opportunities of our life and to be discerning. But what does that look like? You know, we grew up, Kathy and I did, in in a smaller town, but never actively worked on a farm. And when we grew up and were adults and got married, we went lived most of our adult life in the city. And in each of those places, there's a different kind of a culture in Virginia than there is from Colorado, than there is from Kentucky. And in each of those places, people find themselves in, in experiencing different things with different backgrounds, different strengths, different understandings. And when you enter into an environment like that, when you're not native to the area, there are some things that you do to accommodate What you don't do, we'll talk about in just a moment, is violate God's word. But what you do is you get into people's lives and you find out what it is that's important to them. Now, I realize I don't drive a Chevrolet. Maybe if I'm here long enough, I'll do that. But those are the kinds of things I believe that we have in mind. 
For those of you who were raised in a rural life, it doesn't mean that I have to become a rancher or a farmer, but I want to understand more about that life and, and what it means to you. And I know that there's some that don't like sports. Maybe that's you. You know, there's a lot of people in our culture that like sports. And it, it behooves us to learn a little bit more about that so that we can connect with people who do like sports. And the Apostle Paul was an excellent example of this. When you look at him in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 through verse 5, he shows a demonstration of an, a knowledge about the military and about athletics and about farming. And he could talk about boxing and he could talk about running to people for whom that was very important. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. The Apostle Paul, when he is talking about these different groups of people, that's what he's talking about. He is talking about looking into those different areas of life and accommodating yourself to that. Learn more about them, connecting their lives. And so that's why it's important for us, to some degree, to be up to date and aware of current events that are going on. Good or bad, people are watching what's going on in the news. And so for us to know a little bit something about that is very Paul-like. When you walk through the various writings of Paul... You'll find him quoting people that were known to the folks of the day. I was going to say contemporaries, but some of them lived centuries before him. But they were writers, they were philosophers, they were poets that were known to the people. He quoted Menander and Erastus and Euripides and Epimenides twice. And he had an education, but he used that education to open doors with others. Whatever came his way that he learned, that he experienced, he turned around and tried to use that to promote the gospel. Not to get a promotion on the job, not to make himself better in this world, but in order to be able to reach a soul that was struggling and in search of Christ. And Jesus wants that for us. In the prayer that he prayed before he went to the cross, in John chapter 17 and verse 15, he says, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The Lord did not want us to cloister in isolation away from everybody else. He wanted us engaged in our society. And, and he shows us that when he's sending out his disciples. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be Wise or shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. In Luke 16 and verse 8 he says, The sons of this age are wiser than the children of light in this regard. And so the Apostle Paul says, I'm going to look inside the door of opportunity where there are people inside and I'm going to ask myself, how can I connect with them? As you go out this week, and you think about Bowling Green, are you noticing there's a lot? Of, where are these folks coming from out of state? Why are they doing that coming to, to our state? But they're, they're coming from a lot of different places. They're coming from a lot of different backgrounds. And God is placing them in your path. And here's what He wants you and I to do. No matter where they are, and that's not just the sophisticated elites. If you look at Jesus, He spent a lot of time with fishermen and merchants. You think about the various walks of life where people come into your life. Look into that door of opportunity and see... How you can connect with them. That's how we win without a word. But then third, to win without a word, we have got to be careful. It's important for us, sometimes folks get confused about what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The Apostle Paul was not in any way saying that he was compromising the truth in order to reach a lost soul. 
He is not saying to the partier, to the reveler, I became a reveler. He's not saying to the Judaizer, I became a Judaizer. If you walk throughout the epistle, he mentions companies of people. In the church discipline context, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 10 and 11, revilers and swindlers and drunkards, he says that they deserve uh, the spiritual judgment of God. Those are those in the body of Christ. But then in chapter 6 and verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the fornicators, the idolaters, the adulterers, the effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, dr- uh, drunkards, uh, covetous, revilers, and swindlers shall not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's not saying that we're going to do whatever it takes to blend in like a chameleon in the environment where we are, to be shallow or insincere. Here's what he says. He says, to those who were under the law, I became as one under the law, but not myself being under the law. And then in verse 21, he turns around and he says, to those who were without law, I became as those without law, yet not being without law to God, but being under the law to Christ. So we know what he's not saying, but what is he saying? And that's where it can be a challenge. Are you willing to give up something that you have the right to do in order to bring about the salvation of a soul? Instead of insisting on what you think is your right, are you willing to use your influence in order to win a lost soul who might be detrimentally affected by you exercising your right? Now, the interesting thing about 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is that it's an illustration. Including our text, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22, it is an illustration of a principle that he introduces in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In chapter 8 and verse 9, he's talking about the, those who, weaker brothers who themselves uh, are going to struggle over seeing meat offered to idols. They, they couldn't eat that meat that had been offered to idols in a temple service because to them it would cause them to trip up and to think about their old life that they had come from. And so Paul's speaking to the stronger brother and he says to them, you're not going to do that. You're not going to wound this weak brother because you having knowledge, they see you doing that, and then they may be emboldened to go and do it themselves. The Apostle Paul says that if you do that, you harm your brother, you wound his conscience, you sin against him, and you sin against Christ. And so Paul says, if meat causes my brother to stumble, I will not eat meat so long as I live so that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Lord willing, Jeremy and I are going to go to Salt Lake this week. That's our intention. We're going to be out going to a lectureship, but there's barbecue out there. And I love Kentucky barbecue, but I believe that Texas, at least brisket, uh, is some of the best in the world. I, I don't know that that was what the Apostle Paul had in mind. What he was talking about was meat that was used in religious service that may have even been purchased in the market. And somebody says, oh, if it's been there, I can't do that. But there's a principle that goes beyond that. The principle is, I'm not going to flirt with those things that might cause my brother to stumble. I'm going to flee from those things. Because I don't want to do anything. If that's true with a brother, what about somebody who's not yet in the body of Christ, who's watching my behavior? Man, one of the most powerful tools that God has given you and me is our influence. People are not just listening to what we say. They're watching what we do. And they're seeing the judgment that we exercise. They watch where we go. They listen to what we say, how we entertain ourselves. And we want to be very careful that what we do does not cause someone to fall away. 
That's what the Apostle Paul is talking to us about. Be careful because the world is watching us. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Examine yourself so that you do not fail the test. You know, when the world is looking at one who professes to be a Christian, they're looking for somebody who's going to be inconsistent and hypocritical. Something that they can criticize as an excuse. And they may, despite our best behavior, do that. But we want to be very careful not to allow them through heedless action to do that. But then finally, if we're going to win without a world, we need to be relentless. When you look at the Apostle Paul, that's a word that we can use to describe him. He was tenacious. He would not give up, no matter what. He says, I do all things. By all means, that I might win some. And then he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I might become a partaker in it. Do you not know that those who run the race run all, but one wins? Run so you do, that you may win? Those who uh, participate in the games exercise self-control in all things, and this they do for a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. Therefore I run, not as with uncertainty, I box, not as though beating the air, but I discipline my body, and I keep it my slave, lest when I have preached to others I myself become disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. The idea is, and some of you maybe have been involved in some kind of training when you were trying to do some kind of athletic event that was outside of your norm. When you're training in that way, you have to watch what you eat. You've got to be very careful about that so that you will perform better. And if that's true athletically and physically, it's certainly true spiritually. The Apostle Paul is looking at his life and he's saying, I'm going to do everything I can to pursue this goal by all means possible so that I might win some. You know, as we consider that, maybe there's some things that we can do to help us to be relentless in this goal and not to be distracted. Man, I don't know that I've ever lived in a time where it feels like life is more distracting than it is right now. I'm talking about the things going on in the world. Number one, what we need to do is to keep political passion in check. If we're going to keep relentless, I mean, it, doesn't it seem like everything that's going on in our society is looked at through a political filter? No matter what you're talking about, there's some kind of political position on that. Now, in my younger days, and I still largely feel this way, I'm not a, a pacifist. But one of our great brothers in our past, a man by the name of David Lipscomb, was... And in his writing, and and pacifism was not just with regard to war, he didn't believe that a Christian should be involved in politics in any way. I don't agree with that, but I do think that he had a very wise statement when he said that some of the worst despots that the history has ever known were those who mix religious fervor with political ambition and strife. Isn't it ironic that we in our political passion could get so irate about something that our words and our actions may cause a new Christian, a weak Christian, or a non-Christian to be repulsed from the cross of Christ because they think that Christianity has something to do with politics when it does not. We need to be relentless in the pursuit of a goal and not let our, and we all have political views, but not let those passions get in the way. I saw it happen in the congregation, not in this state where a preacher was so obsessed with certain political things, it came out in his social media posts, it came out in his sermons, in his Bible classes, and he literally brought division to a congregation through that. We're going to be relentless toward the goal of winning a soul. Number two, what we're going to do is we're going to watch those weak 
areas and those weak moments of our lives. We all have them. Are you not a morning person? Are are you someone who is maybe sleep deprived? Are you somebody who's under a lot of stress right now? You know, the Apostle Paul is talking about the Corinthian uh, Christians and he gives the Israelite examples in chapter 10 and he talks about how they were more concerned with their appetites, with their physical, than they were about pleasing God and how their influence affected others. And he ends that by saying, therefore, be very careful, take heed, so that you and your standing don't fall because you've not been careful enough. That's what we, we have here is this idea that we're going to watch those weak moments. First Corinthians ten thirteen. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a means of escape that you may be able to bear. But what we've got to be able to do is to say, I'm not having my best day. I need to be very careful. I need to step back. Or I'm having a problem in my life. I need to focus on that so that I can be a better example. To be relentless, but also fight the urge to defend careless behavior. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Proverbs 21 and verse 2. You know, here's the world way of doing things. When we let something slip or we do something that causes our influence to falter, to try to find some way to justify it or defend it or to give some excuse for it, when the world sees that, what they think is, oh, okay, you're just like us. When the world is caught red-handed, they'll proclaim their innocence. But what a powerful influence in us in our relentless pursuit of a soul if we do mess it up to confess, I did that and I'm very sorry. That's a powerful influencer of a lost soul. Then also what we can do is to make sure that we don't win the battle and lose the soul. And that's a powerful principle in all parts of life, but especially is that true with regard to the spiritual. And so Paul would speak to us as we go out there, whether we're using our words or not, that the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but gentle, be patient, especially when we're wrong, as we reach out to those who are opposing themselves. Interesting and May 10th, 1869, there was a fight going on between two railroad companies to see who could go the farthest in trying to connect the transcontinental railroad from sea to shining sea. And on May 10th, 1869, telegraph operator was right there with a bird's eye view of the last golden spike that was driven into the last section of track that brought those two railroads together. And interestingly, one of the subplots that was so fascinating involved the Central Pacific's use of Chinese immigrants. And there's some observations I want to make. These Chinese immigrants were different in their habits in their dress and in their looks. And these immigrants were those who were willing to take on the most dangerous and uh, unlikely tasks. If there was something that seemed improbable, they would volunteer to do it. And not only that, they were such hard workers that their work ethic astounded their bosses and their bystanders. And the most incredible thing was they did all of this work without uh, power-automated hydraulic tools. All they had was a pickaxe, a hammer, a wheelbarrow, and dynamite. And yet it was these Chinese immigrants that built uh, some of the most formidable tunnels and roadbeds in some of the most rugged and, and dangerous mountain ranges in the continental United States. 
What does that have to do with our subject tonight? Well, the early church was comprised of individuals who were different from the rest of the world. And they did the improbable, the unlikely task that God, through uh, Christ's great commission, had given to them. And that was to take the gospel to the whole world. And their work ethic astounded their friends and their enemies. And the thing that's amazing to me is that they reached the, the whole world with the gospel, Colossians 1.23, without the benefits of modern transportation and technology. And they weren't normally the biggest, the most influential people in their community. But what they had was a relentless pursuit of the message of Jesus Christ and by all means they were going to do whatever they could to get that word out there. A relentless pursuit of a soul. Peter's not saying to a Christian wife you can't say a word to your husband if he's not a Christian. Don't try to teach him. No, I don't believe that's it at all. But what he is saying is that there ought to be in your life such an influence that your good and righteous behavior will win him even when the spoken word is not penetrating his heart. And I think we know enough about the Apostle Paul to know that he is not somebody who is going to keep his mouth shut very easily. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel wherever he could, Romans chapter 1 and verse 15. But he understood the principle that how he was and who he was was as important as what he said in his preaching, his teaching, and in the soul winning that he did. And it's a great example for us to understand how powerful that principle is. National Geographic went near the Solomon Islands and they wanted to go to see the most, uh, the, the, the most frequently erupting volcano in the world. It's an underwater volcano. And what they found was very interesting. That in the midst of all that plume and ash that they saw species, fish, stingrays, and two species of sharks that were swimming around in that area. And what was so remarkable was that Kovachi is a volcano that could erupt at any time. As we leave here in just a few minutes and we go out into the world, the world is not expecting you and me. In a world of dysfunction, they are not ready for a people who show unconditional love, who show patience, who show fairness, who show forgiveness, who are optimistic and who have hope. You know, earlier before Peter addresses the Christian woman specifically in 1 Peter chapter 3, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, Keep your behavior excellent, not your words, although that's part of it, but keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they shall, by your good works as they behold them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What does that mean? He's talking about the day of judgment, that day of visitation. And what Peter is saying is that even though the world is ready to mark off a Christian as some crazy, some uh, irrelevant, some hypocritical person, when they see you, the individual, the Christian, in their lives, that you're going to so persuade them that through your example, you're going to help to open a door, an opportunity for the word, Colossians 4 and verse 3, to where they prepare themselves so that when Christ comes again, visits again. They're ready for it. And what a great responsibility we have. What a great opportunity when we leave here. Yes, let's use the opportunity to speak when we can, but sometimes that won't be as possible. I know some of you in your job, you're not really allowed to talk about religious things or at least to bring it up. You've got to be very careful about that. And so you don't have a ready repertoire of words like you may do in some other industries. 
But whatever your circumstances are, the front line of offense is a godly life. Before a word ever comes out of your mouth, you can set the table for a soul to be won. This evening, perhaps the soul that is in focus is your own. And you're ready to respond to the great invitation of our Lord by becoming a child of God to begin that great life in Christ. There's no greater life. What great purpose He's given to us to change the world through our example and through our words. But maybe that begins with you in your own heart, in your own mind, being convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, being willing to repent of sins, to be baptized in order to become a part of Christ and to be one of the soldiers in His army. Or perhaps it is as a child of God you realize that you need to do better in your Christian life and being the kind of example of being focused on this world. Or perhaps there's some struggle that you're carrying around that you're ready to take on your own out in the world without the benefit of the prayers of your brothers and sisters. This is a praying congregation. And this is a congregation, if you'll let us know, we'll pray with you and for you. If this is your invitation, we would urge you to come right now as we get stand and sing this song.